We at Time to Rebuild would like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. At the YMCA Rebuild, we're in the business of reducing recidivism in Victoria and in no way do we condone criminal activity discussed in these episodes. We support victims of crime and are committed to creating a safer community. You ask me the questions and I'll talk. I think you've been yelled at a few times, mate. That's a really good point that you make because we're, this is what this podcast is about, is giving that little sight. You're, you're going you're gonna to do things that are compromised, maybe the values and morals that you were brought up with, or maybe they fall right in line with the values and morals that I was brought up having. Um, my focus is just focusing on what I'm going to do when I get out. And all the stuff that you mightn't have thought of mm. that goes on in the prison. Yeah, like how many alarms get set off when you walk in with me, Cronin. Mark Wilson. Me Cronin. How are you? Yes, doing very well, very well. Well, we're uh, we're back on the we're back online today doing our interview, Mark. So, uh, but it's a uh, an exciting interview, one that we've um, wanted to do for a while, and we've got a a cracking guest um, who we were going to speak to about his life and and his work and all the inspiring stuff and he's doing in the you know community and also with incarcerated people as well. So, um. Without further ado, we'll introduce uh, Joe Kwan as our, as our guest. Joe, how are you? Ah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Mick and Mark. Now, good to have you on, mate. So just to give our listeners a little bit of background on Joe, he's a social entrepreneur and the founder of, and CEO of Confit Pathways and Convict Fitness. Joe is, a passive, pass, oh, Joe is a passionate advocate for reducing recidivism in Australia and is renowned for his innovative approach to helping formerly incarcerated individuals to find a sense of belonging in society through mentorship around fitness and education. All it took was one positive mentor to change the direction of his life and today he has a team of positive mentors who are working towards the same goals. Joe spent the former years taking away from so many people's lives, but now intends to spend the rest of his life giving back and adding value to those who need it most. Joe, you forgot one major thing, mate. What? You're a social uh, 2022 social change fellow. Yes, I am, and so are you, Mick. Amazing to connect to you. We were just at a summit, Mark, um, in Sydney with 200 other fellows. And um, for me, you know, I think Joe was... Uh, it's brilliant being a social change fellow, doing the work that I've been doing for years, to then suddenly see someone like Joe come into this new cohort for the amazing work that he did, you know, had me excited, Joe, because it was like, finally, I have someone that I can talk in the same kind of work that we're doing, or similarities in the work we're doing, but uh, yeah, so it's been a pleasure um, getting to know you, and uh, and I'm looking forward to our listeners getting to know you more um, over the next hour or so. So... Why don't we just kick it off, Joe? Why don't you give us a little bit of a, a background of, you know, what a young Joe Kwan was, was like growing up? <clears throat> yeah, so I grew up in the western Sydney suburbs of, um, like, out western Sydney. Um, my mum actually, I was born and raised in Sydney. My mum came here. Um, she is an opera singer. So she got a scholarship into um, the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. So she came here, met my father here, and obviously, you know, conceived me here. They got married here. But, you know, I realized it's a f- being an opera singer is a fun in life. If you don't make it, you live this lavish, kind of looks very shiny on the outside. Uh, you know, she's always in a, you know, in a ball dresses and doing concerts. And we're going to, she's taking me to the opera house when we're young, all these recitals and all these like 
really educated people but then you know that was just once every few months and then you're back into living life of like we're living in housing commission and you know and you know she was she was a struggling musician right um really takes something to make it in that in that in that game um so I, i got to see that you know i was probably the only one who grew up in the hood who who could tell you the difference between a clarinet and an oboe by just listening to the sound you know (laughs) 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 but you know reality was you know i grew up in an area where it was full of crime um there was a lot of drugs a lot of uh in the early 90s to start the 2000s you know um there's there was a lot of um, gang activity where i grew up um and you know i never really had so my father left us pretty early pretty early on so it was just my mum and i uh no siblings and um the i needed a kind of like a male like a role kind of male figure in my life you know and i was looking in all the wrong places you know and i looked what i looked at where i could get access to which was pretty much on the streets you know a lot of the older guys on the streets you know i looked at them and they all had were driving and all remember the days when they were, everyone was driving done up cars with the spoilers and the and the mufflers you know i thought that was the coolest thing they had like nice watches on they got multiple phones and they got the hottest girls you know linked to their arms so i'm thinking that's what i want because that's all i saw that's that's what i glorified because i didn't know any better i didn't know there was a different life out there you know no one to show me that you know hard work and education can really pay off into greater things but you know for me you know my immediate way of success was um to be a criminal so from a young age you know um i always had an entrepreneurial kind of spirit i guess entrepreneurial mind um so there's a funny story in primary school how i got um how i got expelled actually in from primary school um was i used to live in campsie and i lived on the second floor and downstairs there was this older couple that they used to get up to really funky stuff um and one day they chucked out a a box and the box was full of magazines they chucked it out thinking that you know the bin the bin rubbish collection was going to pick it up the next day and you know i'd go through the dumps and i saw this box and i opened it up it was a massive box just full of porno magazines right and what do i think i'm like bingo so i've taken all these porno magazines to school and i've sold it to all, all my students or everyone at the school small one page was a dollar double spread page two dollars you know i was you the richest kid two in- pages you're giving them one page for a dollar <laughs> yeah one page for a dollar double spread page two dollars and um yeah i was the, i was the richest kid in primary school you know and i got really fat because i was smashing like five meat pies a day and you know mum never made me too much mum never made much lunch for me you know before i was always stealing other boys lunch or other people's lunches but here i am now bowling buying ice ice creams and you know all those pizza pockets and all that stuff you get from the primary school canteen and um yeah and then you know obviously these kids they get caught by their parents and parents are asking where'd you get this from and it was the most embarrassing moment when the principal called my mum down and had to show her your son has been distributing and selling pornographic material and spread it out on the table and my mum just looked at me and gave the biggest slap in the back of the head (laughs) 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 but you know like since i was young i was always had that entrepreneurial spirit um then you know i moved that the Getting expelled from primary school was kind of like the start of uh, 
what my you know academic or schooling life would look like you know so in and you know in primary school about year was the end of year five no year six it was year six um i ended up seeing my first um murder so it was a it was a gang fight um i still remember campsy bimmy street it was at the billiards hall um all the older guys used to hang around at the back and at the front there was like these arcade games uh, where i used to go ride my bicycle there and play street fighter and you know all that kind of stuff and you know i used to see the older guys at the back always smoking and you know i was very i was a curious kid as well so i used to go to the back and ask these guys hey give me a cigarette and i'll be this little kid in my school uniform primary school uniform imagine these older guys looking at me going what the hell and i guess it would have been funny for them as well oh here's a cigarette what are you gonna do and i lit it up and i smoked it and i went you know i'm pretty gangster as well kind of thing you know and and they were like the older guys that i used to look up there they probably thought I was, it was pretty cute right and um you know one day they you know there was a massive fight there between two different groups and and one uh, unfortunately one guy ended up um, getting killed and i was a witness i was a witness to a murder and i remember the the older guys always telling me from a young age keep always keep your mouth shut whatever you see you haven't seen it you know i was it was, i was ingrained in me you know and um when the cops came i didn't say a word and my mum was like we're getting the fuck out of you you know so <clears throat> we ended up moving around a lot so during my um adolescent like youth youth days like we moved around a lot in around sydney you know southwest sydney um you know inner west suburbs and we moved around heaps so i never had a real stable like upbringing you know i never had friends from the neighborhood it was always moving from one place to another and um yeah i was in high school and you know my mum decided to one day take me to a school in um in north shore like north shore is more the affluent area Mum goes, we're going to move there where there's no no crime and, you know, um, it's a settled area. And you know that saying, like, you can take the boy out of the hood, but you can't take the hood out of the boy? Classic case, you know, went to high school straight away, you know, trying to sell kids marijuana, offering kids cigarettes. And, you know, I was like the go-to guy to get, you know, like, things like fireworks back then before 9-11 we had the bb guns you know i used to always bring bb guns from overseas and it was like they actually looked like replica guns and you know when you're part of a gang you pull out a replica gun everyone thinks it's real right and um i i, I got caught on cctv camera wearing my school uniform pulling out a replica gun because we we're outnumbered um because you know back then the boys pretty sure same thing in ireland you know like even here you know after school all the boys get together to have a punch on and you know, um, one day we got outnumbered and we just, I just pulled out this replica gun and you just see everyone just scatter, you know, and I got caught on CCTV camera, so I got expelled for that as well. So, you know, pretty much every school I went to, I got expelled and um, I dropped out of school in year 10 because, you know, I was one of those kind of disruptive kids, you know, um, I learned differently, you know, I learned differently. Um, I think the school system's a little bit, I look at it, it's a little bit unfair how they favor kids who who learn the way the system tells them and they're very obedient to what's going on in class but you know kids who have you know an opinion or whatever uh, the, whenever i used to come to class the teacher would be like joe get out of class get out and I, that was me as soon as i walked in like joe get out i'm like fucking hell why would i want to go to why would i want to go to school you know i did not feel accepted at all um i felt more accepted out on the streets 
you know so uh, i started hanging around with the older guys and you know started off from you know pushing small amounts of like marijuana then it got into small amounts of ecstasy and ecstasy was my kind of best-selling product because i was at that age you know like you know underage parties don't be naive parents you know because there's no alcohol at parties that doesn't mean there's no drugs right and there was nothing but drugs there was no alcohol but nothing but drugs so i used to always supply um you know ecstasy to other school like the people my age and then that got onto cocaine and you know um delivering large amounts for older guys to different states and it just started growing 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 but you know i was taking all the risk you know, I was taking all the risk and I've been, I was kidnapped once as well. Um, I was kidnapped and I've been robbed. Uh, and I had to go through all that to realize, you know what, oh, screw this, I'm going to I'm gonna start my own thing. You know, and, and at the time I was part of a gang and um, I ended up leaving, which caused a lot of dramas that I had to deal with as well. But, you know, I had, a ho- I brought in a whole group of guys that I used to, that, that I used to know into the gang. I took them all out as well. So we started, a, I started my own syndicate. Um, I think it was at the age of around 18, as soon as I turned 18. And my first big um, money-making moment was schoolies. You know, everyone at my age now finished high school. And during that time, I wasn't in high school. I was a straight-up street drug dealer. Um, and they were all going to school. So I was like, all right, well, I'll get this as well. So I didn't want to go there to party i wanted to go there to make money you know so um i ended up driving up close to thirty thousand pills ecstasy pills up to queensland two weeks before um and literally this is i was amazed at how quickly that disappeared literally within a week the whole thing gone the whole stack gone i didn't even have left uh, any left for myself you know, I was thinking, oh yeah, at the end of this, I want to party a little bit as well. None left for me, and I had to refuse people. I don't want to sell it to you guys. I want to hold on to it for myself. You know, so yeah, so that was like my big money making moment, and from there, you know, just one thing led to another, and it just I was doing like big amounts here and there, and you know, like it catches up to you. You know, even in the criminal world, I was pretty young. Um, I didn't have any guidance as well. Once again. Um, I thought I was on top of the world and obviously, um, you know, when you don't have the right, even as a criminal, it's like career criminal, even if you don't have the right structure, you're not going to last long. So what happened was one day we were, we, we partnered up with another syndicate who was importing MDMA into Australia. When, when we were doing that, when we were making the money, you know, we, we wanted to make it into clean money. Right, so there was a lady, there was a Asian lady in Chinatown who used to take, we used to give her boxes of cash. I don't know if it was like some account for us where we were getting paid legit money, and we, they were really, they even had accountants for us, and we we're like, we we're consultants of a, of some sort of firm, and you know, we're eighteen-year-old kids, you know, getting like freaking half a million a year, <laughs> you know, but we we're paying tax, you know, so this was a brilliant idea. We we're like, this is awesome. Um, and then, you know, never ever talk when you're on drugs. But this is what happened. One of my co-offenders used to always go see this lady. They were having a sexual affair, right? And what we didn't know was she was doing the same thing for about 12 other syndicates that she was doing, doing it for, right? Um, her office was bugged. So this guy's in the office. 
and he starts talking big, going, you know, we've got a shipment coming in, blah, 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 there's going to be more money coming soon, and AFP's probably listening, going, who the fuck are these guys? They didn't even know about us until that time, you know, and um, they started, you know, back then there was no encrypted phones or anything like that, you know, they started following my co-founder around, then start putting the pieces together, and, you know, what we built up at that time came crashing down, you know, and I was staying at the Shangri-La Hotel. I was, I've been, I've been, I've, by this time I've been followed for, I think it was close to six months. There's an investigation going on. Um, I just did a massive drug deal. Uh, it was at the Shangri-La Hotel and I had cash. It was all over the coffee table. Um, and it was that, it was morning as well. And off I ordered room service and um, I got a knock on the door and I, you know, I was adamant that it was room service. So I put a bed sheet over, over the over the coffee table which had all the cash in it. And I told the who I thought was was my breakfast guy to come in, and it was just silence. And I was like, I walked over to the door, and the door kind of swings open, and I see guys in balaclavas wearing helmets and masks and machine guns coming in. And the first thought in my mind was. Um, this isn't the big breakfast that I ordered. <laughs> you <laughs> know, a few extras in it that you didn't. Ask yeah, it wasn't or... the big breakfast that I ordered. And then the second thing is, shit, I'm getting robbed. So I've run to the coffee table. I thought they were, they were after the cash. I've thrown the cash everywhere. Then I bolted for the door, and I got the back of a machine gun to the head, and I was in disarray. Um, and then next thing I know, I'm getting hogtied on the floor. There's cash all around me, um, and. You know, I had a floor-to-ceiling window, the view of the whole opera house and the Harbour Bridge. And, you know, ironic, you know, my mum used to take me to the opera house all the time and everything was in slow motion. I swear I heard my mum singing opera songs in my head and, you know, there's cash all around me. And then, you know, that was the last view of freedom, you know, before. And then I ended up getting locked up. Uh, th- I got sentenced to 13 years in, uh, in prison for directing a criminal enterprise. Wow. And... <coughs> couple of things on that joe so like when you're living that lifestyle at that age yeah and you were also you know um you were you know selling but you were also taking as well so how how easy was it you know like how easy was it to just lose that kind of sense of reality yeah were you living in like when you look back on it now do you think Man, I was living like a movie. I was living like what I thought was in a movie or I was like it was fiction. I did, I, it was like a separate like feeling when you look at it like on. I can't understand how I even live like that. Um, and then I just want to talk about, that's the first part. And the second part is like, what was that feeling like when you're obviously on the ground in that hotel room? And as you say, you listen to your mum's opera, whatever the music is going through, but it starts to sink in that like, this is serious. Yeah, yeah. So... <clears throat> You know, the reason why I joined the gang, right, one, was because it was the place where I felt accepted, you know, uh, mum was never around, dad not there at all, right, um, once again, I was looking for an older male figure in my life to kind of guide me, um, which was, I was looking in the, all the wrong places, and obviously because I didn't have the male f- figure and my father left me and there was that rejection, um, I was a pissed off kid. You know, um, I was I was a taekwondo black belt as well. You know, and <laughs> that's not that's not a good mix with you know an angry kid who knows how to throw kicks and punches. You know what I mean? Um, and you know what? 
when I look back at it, you know, from like high school to, you know, to my 20s, there wasn't a day where I wasn't like messed up on, on something. I was either drunk, I had to be drunk every night, or I had to be high. And I, I think right now when I look back at it, it was just on the way to mask like that empty hole in my heart. You know, and that's why, you know, that was another, that was the only avenue that I knew how to, to kind of release that, you know, and that a whole lifestyle is just a bifactor of what I was doing because I wanted to supply and not that I wanted to deal and make money. Money was good, but it was just kind of like, I was a messed up kid, you know, um, I was selling and it just, it just, my environment led me to do it bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, I could have actually gone the other way, I could have just gone into harder drugs, heroin, and I could have maybe turned into, you know, like substance abuse, I could have been addicted um, into harder drugs, but it was just, I went a different route, you know, I'm pretty sure a lot of people start that way, uh, because they're masking something, you know, like some childhood trauma disadvantage, and then, um, but for me, it, because the opportunities were there, I guess my uh, my personality was, uh, I'm always looking for something bigger as well. I remember I told you, I've always been kind of like entrepreneurial <laughs> since I was young. And I guess it was just like a natural path for me and those opportunities were always there. But to be honest with you, I could have gone the other way, you know. Um, and that's why I did it. Um, you know, at that time when you're, when you're living that life, you don't think twice about it. You know, like when you're, when you're an 18-year-old kid, you know, when I first started saying I was like 16, you know, but when you're like an 18-year-old kid making all this money, like where am I going to get this money? Where else am I going to make this money? I've never seen this much money in like in legit world ever in, in the circle that I was living, you know. My parents, my mum's friends weren't even make, making that much. I didn't see any of my friends' parents making that much money. You know, I, that's why I got a bit of a chip on my shoulder, you know. Um, and then it's just that, that I didn't think twice about it. Um, and you know, my lifestyle was to, like, it got to the point. I remember, you know, I'll start partying or taking drugs and alcohol on the Thursday evening. And then on a Sunday, I'll wake up in this hotel room and I'm going, where the hell am I? I look out and there's a beach and I'm like, what the hell? This is the Q1 building in surface paradise. I didn't even know. I don't even remember how I got there. <laughs> yeah, I started. I started in Sydney, and I, and I ended up there. I'm like, what? It was like a real hangover moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah so it, that that was the kind of lifestyle I was living, living. And at the same time, I was running a criminal syndicate, which wasn't the best combination. You know, it wasn't like a switched on, like career criminal. No, it was more because I was a messed up kid who was using this as an outlet to kind of reach out. And I, and I still remember when I was getting hogtied, you know, my, I knew, I was getting hogtied. I'm thinking, you know, my life is over. Yeah. You know, it's over. It's over. Um, yeah. So up until that point, like, did you have anyone try and reach out to you, you know, try and get you to like, stop going the direction you were going in? Look, this, it, it was funny because I was living a double life, right? Like a lot of the, a lot of the people that I knew uh, would tell me off about this had no idea what I was doing. You know, it was only the people that were in the underworld that they knew about me. But most the other people, um, you know, I, I actually grew up in a Korean church. Yeah. You know, my mom was part of a Korean church. And, you know, was when I meet my mom's friends, I'm this person, like, they would never know what I was doing. Mm. You know, so I was living this double life. Yeah. 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 And so you were pretty good at 
at hiding everything that you were doing on the outside. I guess so. Yeah. It's um, you can't really t- at that age you can't really tell no. your parents what you're doing. Yeah. And you like my mum, like look, my mum was really questionable. Uh, she she goes, "Where are you getting all this money? Where are you getting all these cars from?" Um, and I used to always give her some bullshit like, "Oh yeah, me and all the brothers, we we got like a steel, like you like steel company." She's like, "What?" I was like, "Don't ask me about it. We're just exporting steel to to China." <laughs> I knew nothing about steel, <laughs> you know? but look, I'm pretty sure my mum my mum knew, but she just I don't know. It's it's hard it's, for a single mother yeah. who who's got you know who, who knows that her son's going through all this stuff. She just didn't know how to approach it properly, you know. And I also, I was really good at hiding. And if she tried to dig too deep, I run away. Yeah, you know, and that was that was the my childhood upbringing, pretty much. Yeah, and I think as well when when like I know a lot of parents having trouble with kids. They get to a point where, well, if they're breathing and I'm still seeing them, then I'm happy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. It's it's a hard one, right? Like mm. you know, every parent loves their child and wants the best for them, but you don't you can't really control the external factors, what's going on outside the household. That's right. Yeah. Man. Yeah, it would be hard. Um what was it like then when you're told by a judge you're getting thirteen years, you've been sentenced to thirteen years. So all this lifestyle, all this this what you've known, um, at a very early age. And suddenly you're facing, you know, going into a prison. So what was it like when you heard that news? And what was it like when you entered prison for the first time? Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell you from the moment I first entered prison, because you don't get sentenced till later on. I got placed in a, so when I first, let me tell you, even before I got placed in a remand center, they put you in a holding cell. So um, we, we were put in Surrey Hills. So Surrey Hills Police Station, and they've got like dungeons down there, right? So the fluoro lights are on the whole day. Um, you've got guys coming in off the street that are that are coming off heroin and ice, and and I remember me and one of my cell, uh, one of my co-offenders, we were in the same cell together. Um, they put us in these blue jumpsuits because not because we, normally that's for murderers who commit a murder, right? But they took it because the clothes that we were wearing, they were going to use it for evidence. So they said, take those clothes off wear these so as soon as we went in everyone's like oh look at these two they're in for murder right they give you one shower every three days um we're stuck in there for like two weeks you know there's no toothbrush you're wearing the same clothes uh and then they moved me to a prison called park lee and once i got to park lee oh my god did the drama start from there you know um i, I feel like when you're on re- when you're in remand center all the troubles and the dramas happen there because you're looking at guys who are not secure about what's happening with the future. Mm. They're not sentenced yet, you know? Um, So they're really unstable. A lot of them still probably coming off the drugs. Uh, A lot of them have the stress of, you know, leaving businesses, families, their their life on the outside, but their life has ceased because they're they're right in prison. It's like the, it's the weirdest feeling, you know. It's like being plugged, taken out of your life, and just I can't explain it, but it, it's just this weird feeling knowing that mm. hey, I'm here, but my life is out there. You know, um, it's not like you're on a holiday. You don't know when you're going. You don't know when you're going to go out. And knowing myself with my charges, I knew I wasn't going to go out. I wasn't going to go out back into the freedom for a long time, you know. So um, it it was not je- prison isn't physically hard, right? Because well, how hard can it be? You know, you you're there. You're out in the yard playing cards, you're training or whatever. But where it takes a toll is on your mental state. 
you know, um, there's a lot of factors. I know guys who lose it over the phone because their partner tells them I can't wait anymore or they found another man. That's the worst one when guys just flip out and, you know, they, they just go crazy. And th there's a multiple factors. Children, when children come into, into play as well, um, money, uh, yeah, and you don't know what, what how long you're going to get. So that's the biggest concern. You know, you don't know what your future looks like because you don't know how long you're going to get. And, yeah, and then you, you come to sentencing and, you know, when I, by the time I got sentenced, went through, like, local court, then got moved to Supreme Court and, you know, your your court dates always get adjourned and it, it, it is a draining process because if you're not getting sentenced from outside, if you don't have bail, right, so it's so much easier to get sentenced while you're on bail because you could just rock up to court when it's your time to, you know, go see the judge and... You know, for inmates, right, you, they wake you up four in the morning, right, they drag you out to the holding cell. From the holding cell, you get put onto a truck to Silverwater. Silverwater is the transshipment um, center where, like, all the trucks go, pick, picks people up, new new inmates that are coming in or moving to other centers or going to court. So it gets it becomes a really busy place. Um, and then um, you go there. Then you wait for your truck to go to court. Then you go to court and then you're waiting in the holding cell. And sometimes it's like, you don't even go up to see the judge. You're like, oh, you got adjourned. So you're going back. So you got to wait till 6 o'clock, 6 p.m. Then you go back to Silverwater, sit there. And by the time you get back to your jail, it's past 12 o'clock. You know, and there are people who are on trial who do this every day for months and months. You know, it is ridiculous and you see just their face just shrivel up and, you know, like dark circles under their eyes and but a lot of people who are on murder trials or big drug charges, like they get to halfway and they're like, No, nah, I'm just gonna plead guilty. I can't take this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know? That's really that's really interesting as well. So in your time then you're obviously like, you know, in prison and you're getting through, you know, the years or whatever and obviously you've you know, you've got your sentence and so forth and you're getting on with it like tell us when the turning point was for you like when was it when you know you're sitting there joe and you think man i gotta do something like this yep. you know what i mean i'm just i've got to change you know what i mean and what was that and then how did you act on it yeah so <clears throat> so you know when i first went in you know just turned 21 got sent, uh just got 21 i was in remand center and you know what i was thinking at that time i'm going right now i'm in jail screw it, I'm going to be a career criminal and I'm going to be the best. So, you know, they say that prison is the university for criminals, right? So all I was doing was networking with other drug lords, international drug lords, make, trying to make international contacts, you know, uh, and that's all I was doing, making, you know, making friends with all the heavies. So, you know, they you need you need heavies in the game to, to kind of, to have a bit of muscle when you, if you're in the drug game and, that's all I was doing, just making friends with criminals because that's what I wanted to do. Um, and few years down the, tr few years later, you know, I was um, talking to a lot of. I was at this. I was at Lithgow, Lithgow Maximum Security Prison, and I was talking to a lot of these like so-called drug lords from, and they're international drug lords. And I was asking, how much jail time have you guys done? And they say pretty much more than half my life. And I went, what do you mean? They go, I've been, I've done jail in Germany, I've done jail in New Zealand, I've done jail in Australia. They made, named three different states in Australia. And I was like, 
you're meant to be like the 007 of like the the drug lords you know you guys are doing like freaking crazy shit like they had like drone submarines and stuff like that and i'm like how are you still getting done and i'm like if you guys are at that level still getting done i'm like there's no guarantee right you're not going to come back to jail and at that point there was so much ugly things going in prison you know like there's fights going on it's just petty shit as well you know um getting treated like you know like like a fifth class citizen by the prison officers you know um you're dealing with you know mentally ill inmates you know i've got had cellies who are schizophrenic trying to murder me in, in the middle of the night you know it was just i couldn't deal with this shit anymore you know i'm going far out like i don't think i could do i don't i've got nine years i got nine years on the bottom right mm. um 13 years on top which was like non-parole periods of nine years and i was like I've, i can't do another nine if i get caught again it's going to be more than nine years it's going to be like, you know over a decade so i'm like i can't do this anymore you know and i wanted to change you know i didn't know how you know so but the one thing that kept me positive in jail was um fitness you know i had a group of guys that i used to train with and you know um like we used to just train we had a regiment every morning you know we used to train together and uh, the, having that community in prison was something that made me feel really good and you know we trained because we i trained because i wanted to feel free uh, not not just you know because i was incarcerated didn't mean i was incarcerated. my mind was free when i used to train you know it's like my way of you know getting out of the realities of prison and you know one of the guys in our group he, he got released and this is something that really hit me you know he he got released and he came back not long after literally like a month after he came back you know and i was like what the hell why are you back so early and he goes joe you know life's hard out there for us you know like one it's hard to get a job you know i don't have the skills to 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 get like a decent job or like all i can go do is some laboring job in construction and he goes man I, I i couldn't get myself out of bed there's no motivation there you know people in society look at me and they they, they think i'm like some bad person and i never get a chance doing anything you know and then wh what else can i do he went back to his boys and went back to his old ways of doing what he knew the only thing that he knew how to do right and uh, he came back in and and this is it really affected me because i was going crap that's me like i i'm i'm uneducated you know i dropped out of school in year 10 i don't have i don't have family support you know i i don't have any skills i don't have any friends i've got no money like wh what am i gonna do you know um and i looked around and the common denominator for why everyone was incarcerated was the lack of education and i was a part of that statistic you know, growing up, you know, marginalized community, you know, coming from the disadvantaged background. And I was just like, man, this is crazy, you know. Um, but I thought, you know what, if I somehow educate myself, maybe this could be something. So like a start of a change, maybe, you know. So I, I remember I was reading um, a book at that time called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And in the book, it said, accounting is the language of business. So I'm thinking, you know, I know a little bit about illegal business. So I'm going to go learn this new language of legitimate business. I went to the prison library, got myself an accounting textbook. And as soon as I opened it up, you know, I started sweating because, you know, there's formulas and shit in there that looks like hieroglyphics you know like <laughs> pigeons and bugs are sticking out and <laughs> yeah. you know as as soon as i started you know like i'm gonna give up this i can't do this yeah. you know like, I, I i lost all hope and you know i felt i felt shattered and 
it's so funny because when you want something so bad, I feel like the universe brings people to you or situations, opportunities to you. And it was that exact same day when I said, I can't do this anymore, right? I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. I was doing laps up and down the prison yard and this new bloke comes into the yard, right? So he he had an uh, older Caucasian man. He had this massive bruised eye, you know, because he'd been punched in the face and, you know, he, he was walking around like, you know, the, the world was over because the rumor was that he was a billionaire accountant. You know, he come to he come into prison for Australia's largest tax fraud, you know, um, and pretty much everyone was out to extort this guy, you know, and they said, you know, he's a billionaire accountant. Everyone hears the word billionaire. All I heard was the word accountant. I'm like, <laughs> oh, you beauty, you know. So I, w- I approached him and I gave him a I gave him a business proposal that he couldn't refuse. So I said to him, look, if I'm gonna allow you to move into my cell under the condition that you teach me accounting every day and in return I'll give you the protection of my gang. No one's gonna lay a finger on you while while you're while you're with me, you know? So he couldn't move into my cell any faster. So <laughs> and he, he moved into my cell and he kept his end of the bargain. So not only did he teach me accounting every day, but he taught me about business. He taught me about, you know, the value of education, why I should educate myself and most importantly, this is the most important one, taught me about self worth. You know, that you can do this. You know, so, so yeah, so he's the one, you know, I, it's ironic, you know, I found my first positive mentor in a prison, you know, I had to go to prison to find a positive mentor out of all places. And, um, you know, not only, you know, did he support me through all that, you know, he really encouraged me to, to do my HSC in custody. So I did my HSC, uh, I was able to complete it and in hopes that I could go to university one day and, few years passed by and um we moved to different jails and you know, i was having the worst time of my life i was in a in a prison called wellington wellington correctional center it's about five ye- uh, five hours inland um, from in new south wales um it's a regional area and you know i was having the worst time there f- no one comes to visit you because it's it's such a long drive and you know the the they send all the troublemakers there and i was stuck in that jail and you know, I was in the I was in the the common area in the wing playing cards, and this officer walked straight up to me. You know, he had this smile on his face, and you know, he had this letter in his hand, and he and he passed me this letter, and he goes, "Quan, I don't know how you did it, but you know, you, you bloody did it." Uh, and I was like confused, and I was like, "What the hell's going on?" So I took that letter and took it to my cell, and as soon as I opened up, you know. I s- saw this emblem on the, on the top left hand corner and i was reading the letter and it said congratulations you've been admitted into the university of new south wales you know and i was just thinking at the time fucking hell i can't believe this is this even is this even happening you know i you know mick you asked me before you know how did i feel when i got you know sentenced in front of the judge judges you know and i'll tell you something i was ice cold you know, obviously I was shattered, but, you know, I didn't cry. Throughout the whole prison sentence, up, to, up until that point, I didn't cry because, you know, no matter how hard things were, I accepted that these were the consequences of my actions. You know, but when I read those words on the letter, you know, I held onto that dear letter tight in that little cell and I bawled my eyes out because, you know, I, that feeling of freedom that I was feeling at that moment, 
was so big that no one would understand, no one in that prison would understand what I had to go through to actually be accepted into a university while I was in prison, you know, and, um, you know, like I said, education not only gave me hope, but it set me free, yeah, and I guess that was my turning point, having that sense of hope. Yeah. Yeah. So you were, incredible. you were accepted into the University of New South Wales while you were in prison, and did you start yeah. your studies while you were in prison? So after I applied, they... The New South Wales uh, correctional system got rid of all education in prisons. So anything to do with TAFE or external education, the only thing that they offered was pretty much numeracy and literacy up to like year 10 level. And they stopped everything. So they were more promoting like... <sighs> oh, they were they promoting like more like therapeutic courses, Right. But when it came to education, they got rid of that. And I was just thinking, this is bizarre. This is ridiculous. Isn't prison about, you know, rehabilitating inmates to make them better so they could go outside and live a different life, you know? Um, and it was really different. Like it was, you know, they got rid of all education. And I was lucky because, you know, I put that application before that they got rid of that. I had education staff to help me to put this application in. And um, when, I got ac when I got accepted, I was still in jail at that time. So I had to defer. I had to defer until I got out. So this was towards the last couple of years of my, of my sentence. And yeah, I had to defer university and then I started university as soon as I got out pretty much. That's a, um, <clears throat> I'm really interested in something as well, uh, Joe, before we go on to your business and so forth as well. Do you still stay in contact with that mentor? Is he still in your life? Have you passed ways or, you know, you see each other now on the outside or what? How's that relationship? Yeah, so he's still in jail. I'm actually visiting him next week. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, so I'm in touch with his fiance all the time. Uh, so we're talking back and forth. So if I got like a urgent message to send to him, I'll, I'll, I'll contact his fiance or we still write letters to each other, you know. And I find that really beautiful because that is like an art form that no one does anymore. No one Correct. writes letters to each other. It's like all emails, you know, like, you know, instant messaging on the phone. And, you know, it's just so funny because when I remember like writing letters, you become so articulate in how you say it, you know, when you write things. Like it, it comes out so much better because you're thinking about it, right? Yeah, so um, uh, it was pretty cool because he used to always send me like scenarios and give me accounting um, questions like how would you do how would you deal with this and it was a really good way to connect and you know it was the most bizarre and unlikely relationship right think about it when the hell would we in another world ever meet just said we weren't we weren't in prison all right he's a billionaire all right he's got his own pharmaceutical company he he was a partner of one of the big four accounting firms you know and he made his money through mining and you know the pharmaceutical company and all that kind of stuff and like, like, when will we ever meet? I'm this kid who was selling drugs from the street, coming from the housing commission. <laughs> and it was so funny because I, I was so uneducated, you know, and even the way I, I, I spoke, the way I carried myself was completely different to who I am today. You know, I had to build myself to who I am today. But back then, you know, I don't think... I was speaking English, but I don't think half the people will understand what kind of English I was speaking. It was like <laughs> prison or street language, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and it was so funny. He, he's, you know, he's got a background in accounting and he's a lawyer as well. So super um, 
educator, super smart. He used to write the the chartered accountant exams. He used to write it. That's that's mm. what he was. And um, we were in a cell, and he used to get me to read a book every like every night. And he used to ask me questions about it the next morning, you know. And he he'll ask me a question, and I'll answer him. And go, that's that's wrong. That's stupid. Do it again. I'm like, don't call me stupid. I'll go kick him. <laughs> 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 yeah, but you know, like we had our own little thing and yeah, it's just like we were kind of looking out for each other in our own ways. Mm. Yeah. You know, so it's quite beautiful. Yeah, It man. is beautiful so, and it is, you know, you both needed each other just as much. There was a reliance on, it seems like on both years in, in, in different ways. So as much as you were learning from him, there is no doubt he has probably learned more from you, <laughs> you know, and more critical stuff in a sense. Because yeah. you think about it, he's in prison, as you say, as you describe them, he's a bit of a fish out of water, you know. So you, you know, can go outside and probably find accountants and do all that if you really, really wanted like that, and you would. But like, but he, where he is, that's a little bit more difficult to navigate the prison system yeah. and have someone you can trust and someone who's going to look out for you and someone who's going to navigate you through it. So I get you, I bet you, you know, he's, he, the day he met you, for him to, you to say, I'll teach you accounting, he's going, oh, thank God. Oh, yeah. No problem. I'll teach you whatever you want. I'll, yeah. you know, because I need you right now more than anything. So I find it really beautiful. As you say, it is beautiful. And it's great that you've both helped each other. And it's great that you're still in contact with each other and you're still helping each other, I'm sure, in different ways. That's incredible and you've mentioned it a few times uh with education how important it is and going back to the book that you you quoted before rich dad poor dad i think that is one of the major takeaways from that book is both dads the rich one and the poor one both have education as quite high priority well if not the priority of things and, and you've obviously taken it away there and and done it with no, that definitely mm. Mm. so Fast forward then, yeah, to this, uh, we're going to move from uh, entrepreneurial Joe who was uh, selling pornographic mags and then dealing, uh, you know, lots of, supplying lots of drugs um, across Australia and so forth. How do we go into where you are today? Because I find that this is, this is the really amazing stuff that you've done. And, and, uh, and I love the fact, you know, that you said that you take responsibility for your actions and you didn't cry because you didn't, because you had that sense of like, I know what I've done and I'm going to wear this, you know? <clears throat> yeah, so, you know, this was like a bit of a running joke when we were in prison. Um, so, as you, as most people don't know, uh, because most people get the information from movies and TV shows, they think that inmates all train with weights and, you know, that's probably in San Quentin back in the 70s and the 80s, you know, but they, they, there's no weights in prison, you know? It's all body weight training. So... We need resistance, right? So what do you use as resistance? Human weight. So we used to get the boys to jump on your shoulder to do squats and back-to-back push-ups, you know, just to create that extra resistance. And, you know, it, what, when you do that, you, you form a really tight-knit community just through fitness, right? And this is the power of fitness in jail, right? So there's a lot of politics in there, you know? Um, so whatever gang you're with outside, it does not matter, uh, unless you're a bikey, but it does not matter you stick with your nationality. They segregate you by your skin color, which I also don't agree because, uh, but that that is the jail culture. It ha- it's always been like that, right? So, you know, if you're Asian, you're in, you're in the Asian yard. If you're Muslim, you're in the Muslim yard. They segregate you between indigenous, all the indigenous boys. Um, yeah, and they, they, all the islanders and they, they, mi- they mix you up. And 
when there's a yard where there's no like segregate so Goulburn is renowned for just segregating them to different yards and you don't mix but most other jails you, you get to use the same yard but everyone sticks to their own in their own little corners right so as soon as a new person comes in and they're your skin color they, they'll take you in they'll give you like a gift pack they you know some food and what do you need we look we're gonna look after you so like your your gang is your skin color pretty much you know and there's always wars in there between different nationalities but the beauty about training when i used to train right it was doesn't matter what skin color you were where you come from if you love training and you're good at training we're we're all going to train together. But it's funny, after the training session, we all split off into our own little groups again. And I'm just thinking, wow, this is so powerful. You know, it doesn't matter if you're going through like, in the middle of a you know, jail, like, you know, racial war, whatever. Like, boys used to still train together. You, I mean, we used to get hounded by it, but they were just like, we're still training. This is part of training, right? So I, f I knew there was some power there. Um, and I love the fact that we're training together. You know, everyone thinks that we've got weights we don't we train body weight right uh and there was a running joke inside because we used to also fill up garbage bags full of water and you know water bottles we had these like you know detergent bottles 15 liter 20 liter detergent bottles we used to fill that up with water and we used, to, we used to always come up with innovative ways to train and there was one day there was that many bottles stacked up on the wall and we'll be like you know what let's go out and start a gym called bottles first instead of fitness first <laughs> 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 and we'll just be like it would just be like bottle training only and um it was just like a joke right but you know, towards like the last few months when you before you get out of prison you there's this one thought that comes to your mind cons constantly this one thought what am i gonna do outside shit how am i gonna feed myself where am i gonna sleep if you don't have family here, you're like, crap, where am I going to stay? You know, because prison, this is what they do. Like, the parole officer comes and goes, do you have a place to stay? Do you have whatever? Like, so if you don't have a place to stay, right, they don't let you out. You're a liability to the community, you know, but they don't help you to find a place. So I had to bullshit to my parole officer saying, oh, my friend, my friend is going to, you know lend me a, you know, like his um sofa until i find a place to stay and i wasn't actually going to stay there because he's back then we were friends but his partner imagine telling your partner hey uh by the way i have a friend who went away nine years ago um but he's coming out of jail he's going to stay with us yeah <laughs> yeah what partner's going to be like oh no worries he could just stay in our room <laughs> all the you know <laughs> you know so so i always knew i wanted to do something with fitness you know, um, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to start this business called Confit, called Convict Fitness, where I'm going to do the same thing that I was doing with the boys, right? Um, and then we're all going to be trainers and we're going to run like, we're going to be, I didn't even think of this concept of boot camp. I didn't even know what boot camp was. I, did, I didn't even know that existed, right? So um, I was just like, we're just going to be personal trainers and just teach people in the public how to train like inmates and Maybe we could just be PTs. Then I got out of prison and I found out about these things called boot camps that run in the park. And here we go, entrepreneurial mind. I'm doing the numbers going, crap, there's no overheads running a boot camp. Like, you don't pay rent. You just pay like a permit to the, to the council to use the park. And literally all, all my model is there's no equipment. 
all I need is just freaking yoga mats and people to show up to pay to pay me and then I'm just going to train I'm just this is freaking awesome you know and and obviously I was learning about legitimate business how I you know go about setting all this kind of stuff up and I was struggling and remember I told you I went straight to uni as soon as I came out of jail and the first university subject that I did was called uh, creating social change um, that was like a, one of those core subjects that I had to do for my um, commerce commerce degree and the lecturer at that time she's going she's talking about like recidivism rates in Australia disadvantaged communities and I'm like I know everything about this stuff right so I approached the lecturer after the lecture and I was like hey her name's Dr. Ali Walker I was like hey Ali um, nice lecture by the way uh, my name is Joe I just got out of prison uh, last month and uh, <laughs> great lecture and she's like what the hell <laughs> I was like I've got this business idea that maybe you could help me out with and she like she's looking at me with these wide eyes like deer in the head like going um, are you even a student in yeah. my class and I was like yeah 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 I'm a first year student <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, okay, how can I help you? And I was like, look, I've got this um, idea. Uh, I love what you're talking about. Because she, she was talking about social enterprises at that time in, in the lecture. I didn't know what a social enterprise was, but I loved what I was hearing. I was like, this is a really good idea. I was like, can you help me with my idea? And I told her about this idea where, you know, I wanted to, you know, support inmates coming out of prison to make this fitness business where we can make money by providing our services to the public you know um and at the same time i thought that was a great way to kind of break that stereotyping uh, that society has on former inmates when they come out of prison maybe this might be like a big opportunity for us so she introduced me to the center of social impact at who are based in unsw and um surprisingly they used my idea as a case study for an MBA program and we sat down did a whole we did mind mapping matrix everything and came up with the way it came up with convict fitness to be a social enterprise and that's how convict fitness became a social enterprise and we are a platform that you know where we have inmates as trainers and rest of the society as our clients to break that stereotyping between you know the two different communities and you know, people coming out of custody and people in custody to break down that negative stereotyping and be that bridge between inmates and rest of society you know and at the end of the day you know our mission is to reduce the rates of recidivism and the best way to start is to change that perception that society has on former inmates you know not, not all people are criminals and animals you know, um, there are a very, very minor, small percentage of inmates that I truly believe that should not be let out. But majority of the people that are in custody, uh, you know, um, products of fucking dis disadvantage and, you know, um, some sort of childhood trauma or something like that. So, you know, and, you know, we shouldn't look at crime as the problem, but crime is a symptom to something greater in society. You know, there's there's a bigger problem in society that is not. We shouldn't focus about the crime. We should focus on the things that lead to someone doing the crime. You know, um, so I'm a big advocate for reducing recidivism, and that's how Convict Fitness started. Man, and how did you go with the? How did you get it off the ground? So finance, like, did you get some some support? Like, and 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 how small was your team? Was it just you? You started it as one. 
where are you at now at the moment with that? And then we, um, I'm interested to see where you got it off the ground financially. So literally, we boot, I bootstrapped everything. So I, like I said, there was, we didn't need any equipment. You know how I started? It was water bottles. I stole, I stole empty water bottles from the back of um, fast food takeaway shops. You know, they have like these empty bottles at the back they're throwing. So I just took all those, cleaned it up, and just went, right, this is going to be called prison star training. I'm going to tell people how to do prison star training. So I just started off with um, just advertising to friends of friends, um, literally bootstrapped. Zero money went into this, except for like whenever I made a little bit of money, there was no payment gateways or anything like that. It was like, and then people are like, you know, you should start making a payment payment gateway and stuff. And so it was like a gradual process, you know. Then then I got onto how to start up a website. And I was like, how am I gonna pay for a website? And I had to verbal like university students to help me to make a website. And that's the beauty about being at university. You know, you got other people with different skills. And, you know, people like myself who are from the street are good at hustling. So we go and hustle our way to get what we want, you know. And um, literally, I've had no investment into Comic Fitness. Uh, it was literally bootstrapping and getting pretty much just going out there, telling the story. And, you know, not long after, we ended up getting the contract to run Google. So we we're running boot camps for the employees at Google. Um, that was massive because then all the other companies are like, "Oh, you're you're you run bootcamps for Google, <laughs> you know, come run it for us." And you know, we started running for Atlassian and you know, all these other other companies as well. Yeah, literally, we just didn't have any. We didn't, yeah, didn't have any investments. So I started bringing on boys, and I didn't even charge them at the start. Like I said, guys, just I want to help you because this is what I do, right? So, you know, I let them run their own boot camp. They made all the profits just using, you know, I didn't do a franchise model or anything. You know, I'm not here to make money off the boys. Um, it's just for us to grow this initiative to get our name out there and to, to prove a point you know, that we can do it as well. Um, and pretty much that grew. And then during, during lockdown, COVID lockdown, <laughs> you're going to laugh when you hear this. We became the experts in confined space bodyweight training. Because we used to do bodyweight training in our prison cells and everyone's going on about, oh, this is being stuck at home is like a prison. And I'm like, well, let me tell you something about <laughs> incarceration, right? And we were literally running workshops for corporates every week, you know, over Zoom. And I was like, well, if you're scared about meeting any mate, all good. We're doing it through a screen. And yeah, and, and I was running workshops for them around mindset about, you know, how to stay positive in, in, you know, during lockdown and coming from someone who was in lockdown for nine years, you know. And um, yeah, so I've got a team of four at the moment. Um, we did have more, but a lot of people use us as a platform to go and do better things, you know. And that's what we want, to be fitness professionals in the industry, you know. Um, yes, and then through Convict Fitness came Convict Pathways, which is a not-for-profit. So during, um, you know, when we first started, we were pumping out a lot of videos, you know, about, you know, inmates doing fitness training and stuff. And um, that video caught the attention of a staff at a youth justice center. And they contacted me and goes, hey, do you guys want to come down and give a bit of a talk to the young young lads in, in juvie? So we're like, yeah, we'll come down, of course. We were, still at, we were still on parole at that time. You know, it's fresh out of jail. And they go, come into jail, back to jail, obviously. We went back to jail and it was like, how hard can it be? You know, the first time I actually spoke in front of a, of a crowd to 
to present was in front of these young kids at Frank Baxter Youth Justice Center. So there was about 30 young kids. It was the most like nerve-wracking moment because you're, you're talking and these kids are just looking up and down and you're like, man, I've dealt with like hardened adult criminals and it's like, how are these kids making me feel so uneasy, you know? But, you know, it, it was that was just the start. But as soon as we started running the like, fitness programs, you know, I know through fitness, people just interact. doesn't matter where you're from. Third generation public housing or if you're a senior executive, through fitness, you just connect, you know? And we connected and we had such a good feedback from the staff, from the boys. The prison, the, the juvie was like, do you guys want to come back and do a six-week program? And we're like, okay. Um, but then we thought, you know what? Let's let's start up a not-for-profit. I don't know where this idea came from, but we're just like, let's start up a not-for-profit, you know, um, where we just get funding to do this. Because like, I remember I wanted to pay the boys because I was pulling the guys out of their job to come and run run these programs. And... You know, the centers weren't going to pay us either. So we're doing this for like months and months just from, you know, the goodness of our heart because we enjoyed doing this. We knew how much impact it was having, but it was taking a toll on our financial lives because like, we were taking time off from our job and we weren't getting paid for it. So I was like, the best way to go about this is start up a not-for-profit, get funding so we could just pay all the guys to to run this and maybe we can even scale this now. And... um then we start up the, we started up the not for profit. Remember that that lecture I was telling you about, Dr. Ali Walker? Mm. Yes. She is now board she is now a board member of uh Comfy Pathways, you know, it's come full circle Love and it. you know, um it started off from one centre. We're in we're running programs in every youth justice centre in New South Wales. Um we have a team of eight now. Uh, we've got one female as well, uh, one female trainer. It's very hard to find these mentors who so all our all our uh, all everyone on our team has to be fitness fitness professionals, have to, have to have done prison time, right? Know how to talk and be a mentor and change their life around. That narrows down my my search for people. Like it's it's very hard to find people, right? So I, I had to find if I was looking for a female trainer, couldn't find them anywhere, and I actually went to Adelaide to find one. So I found one in Adelaide, and you know we're we're about to open up. Um, we're about to expand our not-for-profit into Adelaide as well, going into the ju- juvie there, and yeah. So that's that's how that's how we started, and you know, literally, you know, with the not-for-profit, you know, who is going to trust? Who is going to give money to a bunch of inmates who came out of jail saying, "Hey, we're gonna start this not-for-profit"? <laughs> yeah. Do, 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 like, can you do, do you get yeah, that? Yeah. Like, who is gonna give yeah, us money, yeah. right? And literally, um. I asked uh, this um, organization called Y Foundation who work with um, kids who are living off the streets, you know, homeless kids. And uh, I asked the CEO because she, she wanted me to come and talk at the annual, annual general meeting. And I did the talk and I said, look, in, in return, can you please help me to find some sort of funding? And she introduced me to an organization called Waratah Education Foundation. Literally, I had one phone call with the CEO. She loved the story. And she goes, how do we fund you? You know? And she goes, we're going to give you $100,000, $50,000 a year, $100,000 over two years, so you can run your initiative. Because of that first funding, we were able to get more funding. It's, it's just It just takes that one funding, to, to the money to come in, and it's a snowball effect. 
you know, because someone has already done the due diligence, someone has already trusted in me or in us for others to go, okay, well, if they did it, well, it's a bit less risky for us to do it, you know, and that it, we started getting funding like that and it was just about us going out telling our stories about our mission and what we wanted to do and what we really want to do is to create that um support network in a community for inmates when, once they come out of custody whether it's through fitness or us linking them up with jobs you know um or helping them to um, go down a pathway of education uh, we've been luckily we've, we've got a partnership with unsw now uh, where we provide full scholarships for young people who are studying for the HSC in custody today. You know, they get campus accommodation, full scholarships. This is a life-changing moment for them because think about it, you know, if you're coming from such a negative environment, surrounded by the boys, imagine now you're getting plugged and you do want to change your life around, but when you go back into that environment, what happens? Peer pressure, um, that's the only opportunity there, you know. But when you get plugged out of that environment and get put into living on a campus with other university students and these guys want to change their life around, it's just no-brainer, you know. And we, we set up that partnership with the university as well. So there's there's a few boys that are now coming out. One guy is now going to start in the first semester in February. So we're just finding him a job until then, you know. And so that's it's just taken off, you know. Um, only because people in society are now really believing in us and trusting us, you know. Who would have ever thought that a former inmate would become a Westpac scholar? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's what that's the amazing work I suppose that they do. They don't look at the well. They do look at the individual, but they look at the story. You know, they look beyond it. They look at beyond the initial story, and they then they go deeper into to trying to find out what drives you what makes you what you are and, and why you're, you know, looking to create social change, you know, and that's why I think, yeah, it's amazing what they do. I'm grateful every day for being chosen that time. It kind of changed my directory and my life a little bit in, in that. I'm really keen to add to, like, in this whole piece, right, when you started your business and, and that, Joe, like, what have you learned about yourself that you didn't know before? Is there something that you kind of go, I never would have thought I could do that or I never thought I was like that? I've never thought of myself as <clears throat> an academic person, right? So it's I used to always sweat, and you know, you know, in our you know Westpac social leadership uh, training and all that kind of stuff, that everyone always talks about um, imposter syndrome, right? Oh boy, when I got out of jail, I went to uni. It, 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 I used to sweat all the time. I used to sit in class, right, and my heart would be beating. I'm like. These are a bunch of uni kids. Why am I so nervous? Like, why am I so nervous? And it, I, I started really questioning. Go, crap! Like, I'm surrounded by these like really intelligent kids. And later on, I, and I just thought, you know, I'm this. I, I don't think I, I my IQ is even that high. I don't think I'm too. I'm, I'm not smart enough to do this. And even when I when we answer questions in class, you know. I'm normally outside. I'm the most confident guy. And in class, my voice starts to become a little nervous, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> and I'm like, what's happening to me at uni? But later on, I found out as we went, like, you know, I'm talking to these kids and they're all looking to me. Like, we were doing, like, uni projects and they're all looking to me as if I'm the leader and everything, right? And it just goes to show you, lived experience is huge. 
lived experience, being able to read people, being able to do the things that they don't teach you at university, the things that taught me in the school of hard knocks on the street <laughs> in prison um, came really you know, useful uh, during my university. So it, you know, I am a true believer, even though you don't, you, even if you don't grow up with a really good foundational upbringing or education or stuff, you could use other skills to really benefit yourself. You know, um, the one thing that I'm really good at is being able to connect with people, networking, um, and seeing opportunities to to pounce on it. You know, and we we, we do call it hustling. You know, and you know how did I get in to become you know a case study at a at a you know for Center for Social Impact on a on the on the master's program. You know, how do I get my website up and running? How did I, you know, get all the payment pro uh, processes, uh, you know, uh, gateways and stuff, all that in place? I didn't know any of this. You know, it was other people who helped me to do it. You know, and all I knew how to do was um, pretty much kind of verbal my way through, you know. Um, and it really taught me, you know, just it, it's about human connection, right? And that's something that I really learned, you know. It's about, that's I think that is the core to any business is to be able to hu have that human connection, you know, a, a genuine human connection and be authentic about it, you know. And um, I, at the start, I used to be really worried about telling my story, what people are going to think and they're going to judge me. But, you know, being what, be, doing what I do, you know, I can't be thinking about that stuff in my head. It's like, this is who I am. Uh, I'm going to be as authentic with you as possible. And it's got to, it, that's got me where I am today, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I think it, I think the best part, like, that I, what, what I've been listening to with your story is, like, everything that you've done now is kind of what you've been doing previously, but in a positive way. Like, yeah, but, yeah pretty much. a positive way to yourself. So <laughs> you've, you've flipped it around. You know, and yep, you've done yep. the university and then you've networked um, and then, you yep. know, you've reinvested money uh, into it and it's kind of just flourished, um, you know, to the yeah. point where, yeah, like your story is really like well-renowned now. I was running an education program last week and I had a class uh, in the prison with, um, with five young guys in there uh, and we were talking about the podcast and uh, one of them goes, I'll tell you who you should get on. You should get on uh, Joe Kwan. I just saw him on TV. Uh <laughs> And I'm like, oh, it's funny you say that, actually. And they're like, what? And like, they all lost their minds and everything like that. They were, uh, they were saying, and like, uh, this is in Victoria, Victoria, in a Victorian prison, so <laughs> in Ravenhall. So, um, like, they all, they all knew who you were, and they're all very much into their fitness. Um, and yep. you know, they were like, you know, a lot of them were look, going, that's what I want to do. You know, what he did, that's what I want to do. Um, hmm. I think, I think yeah, that's that's awesome because you know, like, I think what we do with our mentors, you know, like it's. We go in and we just want to inspire the young kids that there, you know, there are people who've gone through, you know, shit, hell, I guess, disadvantage, but come out of that. There's a lot of other people that go through the same things that we went through as a kid, but didn't go to jail, but they have turned their life around. You know, it's unfortunate that we had to go to prison, you know, but um, with my business, you know, I say use your lived experience to, to your advantage. The only difference between criminal and legal is the fact that um, you don't pay taxes <laughs> to a legal business. But, you know, it's just, if you've got the foundational skills, it's all about learning and growing, you know. Um, that's with legitimate business or the criminal business. It's just, you're, you're learning new ways of doing things and, you know, th that's all it is. You just don't yeah, pay taxes. Yeah, yeah. 
and also i guess that the culture is a little bit different you know like the um disciplinary action might look a little bit different between um a regular business yeah. and a criminal <laughs> business yeah well they still got the skill sets <laughs> in there mate you were still you know you still were looking after staff and running you know a successful business even though it was illegal for a while successful until their room <laughs> service got yeah but anyway um like i'm interested like this and um, we won't keep you much longer because you know you've been so generous with your time joe um in some ways, I'm, I was reflecting on when you were saying, like, you know, I think you mentioned it a couple of times. One, when you went into the Youth Justice Centre and you were talking to the young people and you were feeling, like, you know, different and, or like, you were feeling a bit of the pressure and stuff like And then, obviously, that was, again, when you went to uni as well. And I think it's like when you step out of your comfort zone, yeah? You're so used to, to doing that. Um, and I think sometimes it just adds that little bit of pressure because you actually would have spoken to loads of people, as you said, in prison. But when you're speaking about something that's not about prison, in a sense, it's about your career. It's about what you believe you can help people with in a career, and you feel passionate about. You sometimes I don't know if you, if you reflect on this, but it sounds like you might have. The reason why that sometimes happens because you you you've got this burning ambition to make this happen for people. Yeah. Whereas when you're talking in prison prior to that, you don't have a burning ambition only to get out and just to live. You know, just to to, to survive and do whatever. And I think that yeah. sometimes happens as well to, 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 to people like ourselves or, you know, especially to someone like you. And I wonder if that, because it's, it's pressure, but you know what? I'd also say, you know, it's privilege. Yeah. No, I completely agree, Mick. Um, I guess, you know, that's, that's your mission in life now, you know, and it's like yeah, that pressure is huge. Yeah, and um, I guess it's more like not about what they might think of me. It's what if I kind of, say the wrong thing to for them to do the wrong thing you know um just so that's yeah there is there is a bit of a yeah barrier in between in, in regards to that but um mate then a day like like i said just be authentic and i guess give it your best and just got to trust the process i guess you say that you i heard you talk um just recently we were at the conference and you said something that stuck with me someone asked you a question and you said what do you do or what's your mantra yeah do you remember that yeah 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 do you want to share what it is uh Train to be free. Yeah. Uh, it is called train to be free. My motto, our slogan for Convict Fitness is called train to be free. Same slogan for our not-for-profit, train to be free. Like I said, you know, when we used to train in prison, it was, you know, even though our body was incarcerated, our mind was free, you know, and that's where train to be free came from. But we're helping everyone in society, even like people in corporate or whatever, you know, training isn't just about fit, fitness training, you know. Training is about anything in life, you know, anything you do. You know, you've got to train to be good at whatever, whether it's your work, you know. You know, you've got to put an effort in towards your family, your relationships, you know. That is training as well, you know. And at the end of the day, you've got to do this knowing that, appreciating your life, you know. If life is to, for you to feel free not to feel incarcerated in something, you know, so always keeping that in mind. So that's why we keep that, kept that slogan, like train to be free. Yeah. I love that when you said that, that, and, and then you also, you know, I love when you said that, it was just like, I was thinking like, oh man, that's pretty, really a unique way of thinking about it. But so, you know, so on point. And I think the other thing that, that rang, like rang true for me, like something that you said as well was like, I think someone asked you, you were in the business of lifting people up. And I was yeah. like, that's such an easy thing to say, but it's such, yeah, <clears throat> again, it's on point. You are, you know, that's what you were, we're just in the business of lifting people up. Yeah, that's it. 
yeah, I love it. I love it, Joe. I love speaking to you. I love the work that you're doing. Um, you know, I love the fact that we get to share something, you know, going forward as well. And um, with Westpac and, and, you know, that will uh, either fortunately or unfortunately bring us together more often. So uh, yeah. fortunate for maybe one of us and maybe unfortunate for the other. We'll figure that out as we go along, Joe. <laughs> but uh, it's been a pleasure. But I finish with one question before we, um, before we wrap it up. I ask all our guests. So when you were, um, you know, growing up in Western Sydney and when you were a little kid and all that, what, was you, what did you want to be when you grew up? I actually wanted to be a soldier. I wanted to go to the army. Um, so I had a pact with my best friend at the time in primary school and we were going to go to the army and um, we wanted to be a commander. Remember I told you about those BB guns that I used to bring back from overseas? So when we were kids, we used to like have BB gun wars, like make fortresses, have BB gun wars and we used to play this game where <coughs> we used to make each other pass out by chokeholding each other. And I'll, I'll choke hold my mate and he'll pass out and I'll be shooting him in the ass with my baby gun. <laughs> you know? We were just like little naughty kids, right? And um, he, we got, to, we got to 18 and he goes, I'm going. I said, I'll join you soon. I just can't let go of this life at the moment. I've just got too much shit going on. He ended up going um, and I went to jail and... He used to send me letters from Afghanistan when I was doing his first tour and we were just like communicating through the letters and, and it was a bit disappointment for me because you know, it's like something that I really wanted to do. But, you know, but before, you know, I had no purpose in my life and I thought that was a fun thing to do. But now, you know, nothing can take away this from me. You know, this is my life purpose to kind of give back and like you said, lift others up, you know, and give back through what I've gone through and to help you know, people to 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 kind of live a better life, you know, from coming out from the dumps, there's opportunities for them to turn their life around and I want to be able to show them how to do that. Well, you're building your own, mar- you're building a little army anyway, mate, you know, and you've got soldiers <laughs> on the ground that are doing incredible work, you being one from the start. So it's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's a big fan of your work. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that are benefiting greatly from what you're doing, Joe, on a daily basis. And you're in stories inspiring to anyone that's, you know, living through that life of incarceration who's maybe, you know, um, either in the community now and, and finding they're losing their way or actually, you know, incarcerated or, you know, about to leave prison to show them that it is possible that you can, you know, you know, hone your skills in a different way and by doing that, create a massive social impact along the way. So, you know, look forward to seeing what you do next, mate, and look forward to, uh, you know, um, chatting with you more over the years. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Mark and Mick. Thanks, Joe. Hey, thanks, mate. Appreciate it. If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you or someone you know, head over to our website for a full list of services that may help at ymcarebuild.org.au under the podcast tab. This podcast was produced by Mick Cronin and Mark Wilson. Editing done by Mark Wilson.